The Fanboy, episode 104. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 104 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everyone doing out there? Going to go ahead and hit the ground running because there is a lot to discuss this week. So let's go ahead and start things off with a couple of really quick topics because I have plenty to go long form on today. So let's just kind of start off with a couple of quickies just to get them out of the way. So since we last spoke last week, um, which, by the way, it does feel good to be back kind of getting into a rhythm again, right? This is the second episode in two weeks. Holla! Anyway, um, since we last spoke, we've gotten trailers for Black Widow and for No Time to Die. And these are both, you know, trailer ones for these prospective productions, our first real looks at them. So it's kind of exciting, right? And let's go ahead and talk about each one. So Black Widow arrived earlier this week, and it didn't do a ton for me, if I'm being honest. You know, it's one of these things where it started off being a film I was somewhat intrigued by, but by the end of the trailer, I kind of checked out. You know, it's to me, this character works the best when you treat her as sort of the John Wick or even the Jason Bourne of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as soon as things start getting overblown and you're filling it with like a jokey Marvel one-liner quip type things and you have, you know, falling uh, helicarriers, it looks like practically, and people skydiving and shooting machine guns at each other. To me, it just, you know, listen, if that's the way they wanted to go with Black Widow's story, listen, all the power to them. Maybe this is an adaptation of some Black Widow book I've never noticed or seen. I'm not a Black Widow fan. So listen, if this is the movie that they want to make, then more power to them. It's just not my kind of movie. So I don't really plan on seeing Black Widow unless the buzz is deafening. Unless I find out, oh wow, this is apparently an unbelievably great film and I have to go see it. Then I'll consider it. But anything short of that, and I'm just going to skip this until it arrives on Disney+. Plus, Because, of course, you know, the, 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 the frustrating part is, you know, the first half of the trailer does feel very Jason Bourne-like. It does feel like, oh, this is more like a gritty, spy-driven, character-driven, you know, study of Natasha Romanoff and her mysterious past. Okay, I'm, I'm intrigued. Go on. And then by the end, you've got, you know, it just, it, 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 it totally kind of changes in tone as soon as you see her in that white suit and the whole thing just becomes, you know, eh, just not my cup of tea. So Black Widow, eh, I'm good. I'll see it if and only if it gets an unbelievable uh, word of, you know, word, word of mouth from people who watch it. Because for right now, I ain't impressed. Uh, no Time to Die, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm a big James Bond fan. I don't discuss it much here on this show because, you know, it, th there's not often a lot of Bond news. You know, there's a new film that arrives in theaters every couple of years on November. But there's not like with these other properties where there's new scraps and new details to digest 
and and conspiracy theorize and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there, there really isn't a lot of juicy bits when it comes to James Bond. But, you know, I actually am a fairly big James Bond fanatic, and I have been for all of my life. So with Bond 25, No Time to Die, finally giving us, you know, its first look at what Carrie Joji Fukunaga came up with here for Daniel Craig's final run as 007, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect. But I got to tell you, they... they they found an interesting way to both freak me out and make me very uh, excited at the same time. <laughs> because here's the thing, I, I'll start off with the negative, okay? The, the plot, so far, at least the way it's, it's shown in the trailer, almost feels like this is going to be a two-hour version of the end of a Daniel Craig James Bond movie we've already seen. Because if you recall, at the end of Casino Royale, James Bond pretty much left the you know, MI6. He left the world of being a super spy because he wanted to go and basically retire with Vesper Lind. Remember Eva Green's wonderful Vesper Lind, one of the first real three-dimensional love interests that James Bond had ever gotten? And, you know, we even see them kind of retiring off on a boat and then, you know, more stuff happens and then he has to come back into the life and we find out that she also isn't what she seems and yada, yada, yada. Okay. But the point is, as soon as we see this new trailer and they show a James Bond who has retired and they have that line that you hear where someone says in the middle of this new trailer, you gave it all up for her. You know, it feels like we did this. We just did this. I mean, it's not just, right? I guess, what, Casino Royale came out in what, 08 or 09? I don't even remember anymore. But, you know, to me, in terms of, you know, Daniel Craig has done, this is going to be his fourth James Bond movie. And we've already covered this ground where Bond retires to go be with a woman he really cares about and then you know, uh, things conspire against him that bring him back into the fray, all right? So that was kind of my concern with the trailer, seeing how much it seems to ape an arc we've already seen with this version of 007, no less. But then it kind of went into some new territory that's right up my alley. Because if there's anything I do like about the Craig era... And something that I feel like has gone underseen and underdeveloped since Casino Royale is his vulnerability. You know, if you go to this No Time to Die trailer and you look at the, the scene when he says Bond, James Bond, you know, the, the infamous, the notorious, the signature line, when he says Bond, James Bond in this No Time to Die trailer, there's like a hint of fear in his eyes. There's uncertainty there's a Bond who's not sure he's up to the task, and he's returning to MI6 to take care of some stuff, but this is a guy who, you know, he, he's damaged goods now, and he's been through the ringer, and I like that Craig isn't playing it so stoic this time, because to me, you know, he was stoic in these last few films to the point of me just not being worried about him anymore, me not caring about him anymore, me not being invested in his version of 007, because he just has this, this like jaded, sleepwalking, uncharismatic scowl on for most of these films 
since Casino Royale came out. And look, I know Skyfall did some nice things to flesh out his backstory and give us some more details on who this James Bond is and why he is the way that he is. And I get all that and I appreciate all that. But in terms of Craig's performance, he to me has been very one note for all of these last three movies. So in this trailer, they seem to go out of their way to show a James Bond who doesn't have it all figured out and who is indeed vulnerable. You know, there's also that moment where when he looks down the hall and he sees Madeline Swan, you know, Leah Sado's character, his love interest, coming down the hall, he looks like legitimately shaken up by seeing her. And at the prospect of screwing this all up and at the prospect of coming face to face with Christoph Waltz's Blofeld, you know, and they give him that little warning in the trailer about like, you know, this is the, our most important asset. Please don't fail or please don't mess this up. And he, he, he vows that he won't. But, you know, this looks like a Bond who has his back up against the wall, like a Bond who's out of his comfort zone, who is dealing with a lot of stuff in his own, you know, in his own mind and his own psyche. He's his confidence has been shaken. He's gone through it all. And we, we know that this is his final film. Daniel Craig is bowing out of the role after this. So it's really cool to kind of see the, the, these, these layers for his bond as we go to give it a, a satis hopefully satisfying conclusion. It's nice to see these elements of James Bond getting explored again, showing us more the man behind the myth. You know, that's, that's exciting to me. And what's also exciting is not only does this feel like, you know, new and cool territory for Bond, but it also feels like classic Bond at times. And you, you know, this trailer, you know, so a lot of the stuff he's doing and the way they use the score, you know, this also in a lot of ways feels like classic James Bond storytelling. So to me, the trailer is pretty riveting in that in the span of a little over two minutes, it kind of took me on a whole ride in just those two plus minutes. You know, it, it felt simultaneously new, yet classic, and like, you know, we're going to be bookending Craig's run as 007 with films that take a much more humanistic, vulnerable look at 007. And that's, you know, that's, that's totally up my alley. You know, especially if... Daniel Craig is not going to be stoically scowling his way through this whole thing. I mean, sign me up. Sign me up right now. All right. No, no time to die. Uh, you know, just based on this trailer, they've already staked their claim on my $15 for next November. But all right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get down to why we're really here today. And that is Superman. Because on last week's show, I ran down a timeline that I found really interesting. It was a timeline that at the time I claimed could be a trail of breadcrumbs that ultimately leads to the discovery that Henry Cavill will be back as Superman sometime soon. On that show, which got amazing feedback by the way, so you should probably go listen to it if you haven't yet. On that show, I brought up a couple of things on this subject, mostly theories. You know, and and among those theories, were that Henry and his team 
are once again trying to kick the door back open for a return as Superman, and they have Dwayne Johnson on their side, who's been campaigning for Henry's return, which I think only helps if it hasn't already helped in past tense, if you know what I mean. Um, I also discussed that Henry's, you know, I, I discussed Henry's apparent relationship to the movies he's, he's appeared in thus far, with him loving Man of Steel, but perhaps not being crazy about where things went after that. And I also shared my personal theory that one of the reasons he's avoided all of this release the Snyder Cut stuff is because he's literally in the middle of trying to secure a new Superman contract, and he doesn't want to rock the boat. And this week, Henry offered up updates on all of that, <laughs> on whether or not he's trying to extend his deal and come back, Henry Cavill said quickly and confidently in an interview with the Associated Press on December 3rd while doing press for The Witcher, which, by the way, if we're keeping track of the, uh, the vaunted timeline... What we're adding to the timeline, which last week had included November 14th, 15th, 19th, 21st, and 26th, all of these next things happened on December 3rd. So I just digressed in a big way. But in his talk with the Associated Press, where they asked him, hey, has the door closed? Have you moved on? Is all this a part of your past? Henry said, quickly and confidently, door hasn't closed, leave it at that. Now, leave it at that is very interesting. Because just like last week, when I pointed out the way that he said, you'll see, as opposed to we'll see, as in we'll see what happens, it's more like you'll see what's been cooked up. You know, this implies, this continues to imply rather, that there have been discussions and possibly agreements that none of us are privy to just yet and that will be revealed in due time down the line. So that's pretty juicy, right? And then on his relationship to the films he's appeared in thus far and the Snyder Cut, Henry told Kevin McCarthy this, I have not seen any Snyder Cut. I don't know if there's anything that exists that is a Snyder Cut. I'm sure there's footage out there, and that's probably been pieced together over the years. I'm always interested to see, that that's, to see how that stuff turns out, but that is very much a chapter in my past. I would rather talk about what's going to happen in the future. The future of Superman. How I can express that character from the comic books, which ties in nicely to Man of Steel. And here's the kicker, folks. Man of Steel, I really like that movie, and I'd like to be able to tell the story where it was left at that point. So, <laughs> remember what I said last week about how Man of Steel ended in such a way that a direct sequel would have been able to continue to explore the development of this Superman, this new version of Kal-El, we, we, you know, a, a direct sequel would have given us a chance to see his development into the man of tomorrow. And yet, instead of going to Superman's next evolutionary step, you know, things took a detour into Batman v Superman, which killed him off before we'd ever even had a chance to get to know this new Superman. And honestly, 
you know, it kind of sounds like Henry may feel that way too. You know, that last line in his quote, Man of Steel, I really like that movie and I'd like to be able to tell the story where it was left at that point. You know, it's funny. Like, it, it almost sounds like he wishes he could pull a Halloween, you know, or, or a Terminator Dark Fate and make a sequel that says, forget the last few sequels. This is the true successor to the last entry you loved. You know, it sounds like he basically liked to make a legacy sequel to Man of Steel, which came out in 2013. You know, it's funny and, and, and kind of sad when you think about it, right? Because, you know, even despite my reservations, just speaking personally, despite my reservations with Man of Steel, I probably would have been on board with a sequel. You know, I wanted to get to know Cavill Superman some more. I wanted to continue to explore his relationship to the world. You know, and that's despite my, my, my qualms with the third act. You know, I really felt like, all right, maybe with a different director, maybe with a stronger script or something. You know, th this whole thing wasn't a train wreck. You know, like I said last week, and, and, and one of my uh, listeners got a kick out of that phrase, uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, Man of Steel didn't make me want to do that. Man of Steel just made me feel like, okay, well, with the right sequel... Hopefully this can steer itself into a story that I'm more interested in, you know? And uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, Henry feels that way too. Because also on December 3rd, this time in a chat with Entertainment Tonight, Henry said this, I'd like to delve more into the aspect of Superman that we traditionally know, coupled with where we left him with Man of Steel. It's the hero who is trying to exist in a world where people may say he's not relevant anymore, where actually he's extraordinarily relevant, and it's him coming to terms with that and becoming that relevance and showing people that hope does exist without it being too chocolate box. I think what he means there by the chocolate box thing is, you know, I'd want to tackle this stuff and bring all the hope in without it getting too sappy and too corny. And the funny thing is, you know, many of you, or you know, many people will argue that BVS did that. And, you know, th that the movie did, in fact, explore these those very themes Henry's talking about. But there's a big difference between including themes and actually developing them in a satisfying way. And it doesn't sound like Henry was too satisfied with the way his Superman has been handled since Man of Steel. So, you know, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Honestly, until something is officially announced, not much. You know, Hollywood is a fickle town, and everyone does their best to work their public relations and promote their interests. And while I'd love to say that, you know, hey, folks, where there's smoke, there's fire, you know, the bottom line is all of this is still just smoke. So, while I'm more confident than I have been in a year and a half that Henry may return. And it'll be interesting to see if any of these dots I've been connecting actually amount to something. But, you know, while I, I, I'm feeling a little more confident, I can't get my hopes up just yet. You know, until there's an official announcement, we just have to keep hope alive. And thankfully for Superman fans, hope is always right around the corner. But uh, all right, so now let's 
Let's circle back to his comments on the Snyder Cut because, uh, well, you know, uh, surprisingly, they caused quite an uproar. So let's reiterate. He said, I have not seen any Snyder Cut. I don't know if there's anything that exists that is a Snyder Cut. I'm sure there's footage out there that's probably been pieced together over the years. Now, those comments more or less confirm my theory from last week that he wants to distance, distance himself from all of that. Because there's no way he hasn't heard from Jason Momoa and others that there's a version of the Snyder Cut in existence. There's no way he doesn't know that, you know? And there's no way he's this out of the loop. So when he said that on uh, Tuesday, it was a pretty clear communication that he doesn't want to be associated with that. And I'll leave it up to you to decide why that is. You know, obviously the two main theories are A because he thinks it would interfere with his negotiations, and, you know, B, that he simply didn't care for where Zach took things and would rather have that footage stay buried forever. You know, you believe whatever you want, but the bottom line is, and what is irrefutable, is that Henry doesn't want to touch this Snyder Cut stuff with a 10-foot pole. Who knows? Maybe it could change in the future. But right now, it's very, very clear he wants to have some separation between himself and all of this Snyder Cut of Justice League stuff. And then, that was December 3rd, seemingly in response to Cavill's comments on Tuesday, Zack Snyder went on Vero on Wednesday, December 4th, the very next day, and posted pictures of the film reels for the Snyder Cut. With the caption, is it real? Does it exist? Of course it does. And somewhere else in a comment, you know, he kind of just, he, he, he added to it by just saying, you know, I'm tired of seeing people question whether or not it exists. I'm paraphrasing. So a lot of people took that as he's actually kind of firing back at Henry, who last week is acting like, really, is there such a thing? I don't even know if there's footage. Uh, maybe somebody, you know, saved some footage. You know, it, he, it seemed like he's trying to basically clap back at that. And that actually continued today, today, December 5th. He went on Twitter and, you know, because the, there's a running time on the reels that he posted yesterday. The running time is 214, 214 minutes, which is roughly three hours and 34 minutes for a runtime, which, as you well know, that's an hour and 34 minutes longer than the theatrical cut. So it is a sizable beast and a lot of film to show people. And Scott Mendelson from Forbes posted that, well, you know, because of that length, that must be the assembly cut. You know, and assembly cuts are always very long. And I guess the implication was, then, you know, this must be that rough cut that he showed the studio in February of 2017 that led to them going, all right, we need to bring in someone else. We need to get rid of Snyder. We need to change everything, yada, yada, yada. You know, the implication that, uh, of Scott Mendelson's tweet, unless I'm misinterpreting it, was, yeah, guys, this is just that same rough cut that got him into hot water last time, so don't get too excited about it. And Zack Snyder clapped back at Mr. Mendelssohn as well. He quote-tweeted Mr. Mendelssohn and said that the assembly cut was actually five hours. So that means that he has continued 
to work on this film past the assembly cut. And while some of you will go, well, duh, you got to remember, shortly after he showed the assembly cut was, you know, when, when everything kind of got flipped upside down, you know, a month later, his daughter committed suicide. Within two or three months, suddenly he was off the project and Joss Whedon was in. And then once Joss Whedon came in, you know, that was kind of the, the, the apparent end of his time working on this movie. But here he is showing reels of an edited version of his cut of Justice League. And, you know, here's what I think happened, okay? Because, listen, and, and I should preface this by saying I have no idea about the legalities of this sort of thing. I don't know what the rules are. You know, a lot of people are quick to point out, well, Warner Brothers owns that footage. They own this movie. This is their property, their characters. They have the film rights. Only they can decide what happens with this footage. You know, you cannot deny that he has a physical copy of those reels with their own edited down runtime. And that can only imply that he must have had access to this footage. And it's probably because not he wasn't just a director. He was also a producer. Cruel and Unusual Films, which is what he called his production company before it, it changed over to the Stone Quarry. You know, Cruel and Unusual co-produced Justice League. And a part of me wonders if, if that gives him extra sort of access. That doesn't mean he'd be able to release it on his own. But I think it means that if he wanted to continue to just tinker with it on his own time, he'd be able to because he's a producer on the project and he's got the footage there. What's to stop him from messing with it as long as he doesn't release it, right? You know, and that's not the craziest thing in the world. You know, I actually think about, I think about Tim Miller. You know, Tim Miller on the first Deadpool movie, he did a bunch of free work to keep the budget down and to make sure the film could stay his baby. He was so invested in this that he invested his own time and resources into making Deadpool look and be a much better film without charging Fox a dime to do any of it. He basically did uncredited extra work because this film was his baby, he believed in it, and he wanted to get it right. You know, budget be damned. And a part of me feels like something along those lines has happened, you know, because Snyder, you know, he has a whole production shingle. And in February of last year, he he posted pictures of the the addition of a state of the art facility for his production house. And this is a guy, like I said, who's got resources and it would not surprise me at all if on his own time he went and finished his cut. And maybe he had some of his, you know, some interns and some very, listen, he's got a very ardent fan base. And even within the film community, there's lots of people who idolize Zack Snyder. I'm sure he could have gotten a small core team of people together to kind of help finish up and edit this movie. So that is just, and again, this is my theory. This is not like, I'm not, you know, I'm not passing along any, you know, uh, exclusive crazy information here. But this is what I think has happened. You know, and it came up earlier today over on Twitter, you know, Jeremy Scully from the Play It Loudcast, 
and uh, a bunch of us other geeks kind of got into a conversation about, well, you know, what do we think has happened? And what I think has happened is that he went ahead and finished this movie on his own time. And who knows, maybe it's not 100% complete or, you know, or maybe it's not going to look like something that would have come out of Warner Brothers. You know, maybe the, the, the quality of the effects won't be as great or whatever. But there is a version of this movie that is screenable, you know? And, and the reason I think that is because, you know, like I, I heard whispers even last year. I remember at some point in the middle of last year, one of my friends who's way more invested in this stuff than I am was telling me that that word on the street, the bochinche, the gossip, was that he had invited Ray Fisher over and shown Ray Fisher, that's the actor who played Cyborg, showed him a trailer for his version of Justice League. And that Ray Fisher was, you know, over the moon and excited. And that, that, that was, uh, you know, that's why he went on social media kind of randomly in the middle of last year and posted something about visiting with Zach. And, you know, whatever, I, I, I don't remember the exact quote, I don't even want to paraphrase, but he posted kind of like a warm and fuzzy post where he was there with Zach. And, you know, the, the, the supposed backstory was that Zach had kept tinkering on it and surprised Ray with a trailer, basically showing him, hey, so here's, look what I've been working on. And at the time, there were like little whispers of like, well, maybe he's just not going to make me, he can't release it because he doesn't own it, but what's to stop him from just screening it in his own little private theater there at his house that he's building? Why can't he, you know, he, what's to stop him from inviting his closest friends and family, as well as the cast and crew who worked on the film, to come see it? So that way, I remember hearing that, and that's when I first started thinking, hmm, maybe this thing is farther along than any of us have ever guessed. And now here we are, you know, a year later, a year and change later, and I'm really starting to think that that is not just some crazy, far-flung conspiracy theory. I really don't. I think there's something to this. And, you know, while we're on this subject, I would like to just kind of, you know, add, I'd like to say that, you know, I think some of you may be confused about my support for the Release the Snyder Cut campaign, you know, because you guys know I'm not a fan of his work. So it probably seems strange for me to back this quote-unquote pipe dream instead of simply moving on and enjoying a post-Snyder DC landscape. And, you know, while I published a whole column on this very subject a couple of weeks ago over on revengeofthefans.com, which you should totally read because I wrote it from the perspective of a guy who's not a fan. You know, it's release the Snyder Cut in outsider's perspective. That's my dog shaking herself there in the background. She's also a bit of a, an outsider herself. But, you know, while I've written a column about this, I would also just like to say that this is an unprecedented situation. I've never in my life as a geek seen anything like this before. I don't think any of us have. You know, a, a studio completely overhauls a major blockbuster in a handful of months without a delay, 
They bring in a very well-known director to replace the first director whose daughter recently committed suicide and then lied to their customers about the extent of the changes being made. Then fans see the film, realize the enormity of what the studio has done, and an entire fan base rallies behind the original director campaigning to see their original cut of the movie, which would have been wildly different. Like, laughably, unbelievably different. And then, you have the director himself, almost two years later, and a little bit along the way, of course, also kind of keeping the fire alive, but you have the director himself start to tease this alternate cut with the A-list stars of their movie coming out in support of its release. And suddenly, every major entertainment publication has to address and acknowledge what happened to the original movie. I mean, this thing is like a soap opera. So many angles, so many players, so many moving parts, so many iconic characters involved. This had an impact on so much of what we're going to see. You know, this had an impact on whether or not the Joker would happen. This had an impact on how Matt Reeves is approaching the Batman. Like, this entire story is fascinating. So that's why when people, like, kind of, like, come at me and they want to, like, shout me down or act like it's crazy for me to be trying to support this campaign for a movie that I probably wouldn't even like anyway, you know, whenever people kind of jump down my throat and go, oh, well, the studio would never do it. How would you ever, you know, why would you ever support this? You know, it's like, are you, you're missing the fact that this is kind of like history, you know, it's a riveting, never-before-seen story, and I don't mean the Snyder Cut. I mean the movement and everything that's led up to the Snyder Cut. For me, I win no matter what. You know, if it gets released, it's a win because now I'll finally get to see what all the fuss was about and satisfy my curiosity about what it was about Snyder's Superman and Justice League that the studio hated so much. You know, so that would be a win just to finally get to see what the hell happened there that they felt that it was okay to do all this stuff they did and still release the movie they released thinking that that was somehow better than this but on the flip side if it doesn't get a re if it doesn't get a release i win again because it's been a wild ride filled with twists and turns none of us have ever seen before you know, can you think of a single comparable example to what's gone on since the release of BVS and especially during the production of Justice League and all of the different ways it's impacted all of these other movies and acting careers and everything? You know, it's, this entire thing has been like the crux of my podcasting and writing career has been sort of tracking and following this unbelievable story with all of its twists and turns. So of course, of course I'm gonna pay attention to release the Snyder Cut, and of course I'm gonna be supportive because this is a fan movement. This is people coming together to support an artist and they're fighting to get a movie released and it's, you know, for a guy who runs a site called Revenge of the Fans, I mean, this whole thing is right up my alley. So it really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that I've thrown my, you know, my hat in the ring here as a supporter of the campaign. You know, and I know 
that some of you have issues with members of the campaign. Heck, I do too. There's, you know, that's kind of the irony here also, you know. Here I am trying to get people to support a campaign, the core of which, a lot of the nucleus of the early version of this campaign, hates me. Hates me beyond all logical, rational explanation. They just hate me. And that's why, it, it's probably another reason why it seems a little bit like, why are you supporting them? And it's also, you know, I know a bunch of you don't want to see that quote-unquote bad behavior rewarded. You know, because I'm not the only one who's been harassed by some of that first wave of Snyder Cut people. I'm, I'm far from the first one, and some of you still deal with them to this day. That's why I'm so happy that the block button exists. But I know some of you still have had your, your blowouts with them, and for you, you know, you've wrapped up the Snyder Cut in your mind as being you know, attached at the hip to these awful, toxic fans. But for me, over the course of these last two years, I've gotten to know many of the other members of the campaign, or and I've interacted with all kinds of fans who have rallied behind this cause. And I've got to tell you, I'm not going to, you know, turn my nose up at the Snyder Cut people just because of a handful of jackasses on Twitter. Overall, this the, the enormity of this story and the way that it's affected so much of, the, of what I love, that in and of itself is going to get me behind them. That in and of itself is going to get me to want to see where this all goes and to see if we could finally get some closure. Because that's another thing too. This is not going to reopen the DCEU. This is not going to change the trajectory we're on. You know, at this point, what we're talking about is like the release of a director's cut. And director's cuts don't become canon. You know what I mean? Director's cuts, they, if anything, you know, they get debated and then some people add them into their head canon and some people don't. But this is not going to impact the DC, you know, DC on film. This is going to be either like a Blu-ray, you know, a, Blu a Blu-ray collector's item of you know the director's ultimate edition of Justice League, or maybe they could make a little mini series event over on HBO Max out of it, or maybe release the whole you know three and a half hours. Why not? You know Netflix just did that with The Irishman, so maybe you know they want to do that on HBO Max with the Snyder Cut. I have no idea, but the point is, no matter which way they release it, it's not going to invalidate what's coming next. It's not going to change or impact the films that are coming. It's just be, going to be treated as an alternate cut. So with that in mind, bring it on. And maybe, just maybe, all these people who have been unable to move on from this will be able to turn the page now. Now we'll finally get to see what he had in mind. And then, now it's over. And now we can look towards the future together. No more lingering questions about what might have been. You know, we saw it. We own it. It's there. Snyder got his vindication. The fans got to see his version. Cyborg got to do his stuff. You know, all those different things that got cut. All those great character moments that we never got to see. That apparently got taken out of the theatrical cut. You know, all those things will all come back to light. And people will get to see them. And enjoy them. And savor them. And feel like they got something out of that experience. 
And then we can all unify as a fan base and look towards the future. And, you know, that, that's, that's the optimist in me. And then, of course, there's the pessimist in me that looks at it like, well, you know, why would the studio ever okay this? You know, the, the, this only puts egg on their face. This only reveals the full extent of what they did and how they went about it using the death of, of Snyder's daughter as this weird sort of convenient excuse to kind of write him out of the equation, even though they were basically, you know, showing him the door before that anyway. You know, the, the, why would a studio want to open itself up to that level of scrutiny to now realize, wow, so wait a minute, let me get this straight. You pushed a guy out the door in, you know, in the late winter, early spring of 2017 for the biggest movie that you, yeah, the, your, your biggest DC movie ever opens in November and you decided you're going to refilm almost all of it in just a matter of two or three months, not do any delays, go out there with crappy looking special effects on Superman's face. And, you know, it like it makes Warner Brothers look insanely stupid to have to have all of this become public knowledge of how reckless and how crazily they treated this film in post-production. It's really, it's, it's, it's not something that any studio would be proud to have on their ledger, you know? So the idea of them going out of their way to call attention to what they did in 2017, to me, makes it a little far-fetched, you know? And, and, and the pessimist in me also, you know, when I hear about what happened this week, with the way the Snyder Cut campaign and apparently even like the official Snyder Cut uh, Twitter put together this idea of, of, of going after Henry Cavill's Instagram posts and posting the Snyder Cut hashtag and posting the pictures of, of Snyder's director's cut and tagging Henry in them. You know, when I see stuff like that and now like we're trying to like harass and now we're trying to like possibly indirectly derail Henry's return to the role. You know, that's where I'm like, that, that's a step too far. To me, even though, you know, when, when the fellow who runs the, the Snyder Cut campaign, when he tweeted about it and he said he included the word, you know, respectfully in caps, I still don't think there's anything respectful about this. Just leave Henry alone. If he wants to support it, he will. And if he hasn't, there's a reason for it. So respect it. And I've got good news for you no matter what kind of fan you are. Because whether Henry comes back or not, whether the release the Snyder Cut campaign thing comes to fruition and the film comes out or not, the good news is DC is back. It's thriving. And it did it kind of quietly under the radar. You know, two years ago, Justice League came out and that was arguably its lowest point, which is sad when you think about it because we're talking Justice League here. But because of the way that film performed and all of the controversy around it, you know, it was like DC's low point. And now what's happened since? You had Aquaman, a huge success. You had Shazam, which wasn't a huge box office success, but it was a well-received, 
well-liked movie that kind of established the groundwork for what's eventually going to get us Black Adam. Then you have the Joker that came out that just crossed the billion-dollar threshold last month. You know, DC's back. And next year, coming up in just a couple of months, really, you got Birds of Prey, and then you got the Suicide Squad, and then a year later, you've got the Batman coming. And it's just, it's pretty cool to see that, you know, DC, yes, it had all that controversy. Warner Brothers screwed the pooch on DC between 2016 and 2017, all their behind the scenes stuff really just, you know, things got real, real ugly. But I want you to take a moment right now to look at where we are now as a brand, as a, as a property, DC is back, is back. And that's really exciting, no matter which way you look at this. And when we tie it all together, though, it's fascinating the way this is all gone. Because this whole conundrum with Matt Reeves, the Batman, being set in like its own continuity, basically being a reboot, you know, the casting has made it very clear, you know, despite his early stuff about, you know, where he said Ben Affleck was going to be his Batman and Ben saying he would be a gorilla in one of Matt Reeves' Apes movies. You know, despite all the different permutations here, it looks like Reeves has ultimately decided this is going to be its complete own standalone thing. And that decision absolutely comes from all of the chaos three years ago. And what's interesting, though, is that his is the only movie that's out on an island by itself right now. You know, because, yes, Joker is an Elseworld tale, so that's also up by itself. But in terms of, like, the overall DC landscape right now, Aquaman builds on the DCEU. That's Jason Momoa's Aquaman with a fresh coat of paint. Birds of Prey is a spinoff from The Suicide Squad. Also, you know, that's David Ayer's movie from the DCEU, which came out as a direct follow-up to The Suicide Squad and takes direct follow-up to BVS and takes place in the shadow of Superman's death at the end of that movie. Then you have the Suicide Squad itself, the, 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 the sequel pseudo-reboot that James Gunn has complete creative control over. You know, no matter what creative control he does, no matter how much it pivots the property in the same way that James Wan's Aquaman pivoted Aquaman, no matter how much it pivots, it's still going to have Margot Robbie's Harlequin and Amanda Waller in there played by Viola Davis. So it's absolutely connected. Oh, and Joel Kinnaman's, uh, what's his face? <laughs> Rick Flagg. So that movie is also going to be, you know, a continuation indirectly of the DCEU. And yet next year, the following year, from when these two movies come out, the Batman's going to come out, and it's not going to really have any connection whatsoever despite it sharing so much comic book DNA with all of these other movies that have come out. And it's just such a bizarre, peculiar, unique 
situation. And when the Batman comes out and we're able to, you know, find out a little more about its development, a part of me really wonders if one of the reasons it took so long for the film to get off the ground, because remember, folks, Matt Reeves got the job at the beginning of 2017, and then in the middle of 2018, there had still been, like, no movement. And there had been a lot of talk about the rewrites and the different creative you know, kind of butting of heads between him and the studio, and the studio was going through its own changes. There were all these changings of the guard as to who was running DC and what the philosophy was going to be moving forward about their shared universe. So I think the reason it took so long is because at some point, at some point or another, this movie was going to try to work in tandem with the DCEU similar to the way Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad are, where, yes, they're following up indirectly on 2016's The Suicide Squad, or Suicide Squad without the, but they're putting distance between them. They're kind of, you know, they're veering in a different direction, kind of like, you know, I've pointed out before how, like, Thor Ragnarok took Thor in a new direction suddenly in the third movie. So it wasn't a reboot. It was a sequel, but just a very different one. Or the same way, again, the way John James Wan did with Aquaman. So at some point, Matt Reeves was going to make that kind of a Batman movie. And then somewhere in these last two years since he got the job, something changed and he made the decision he was just going to veer off totally on his own and just do what he wanted to do and recast absolutely everyone in the movie and in such a way where you can't even confuse it. Listen, you're not confusing Jeffrey Wright for J.K. Simmons anytime soon, you know? Because So, like, even if you wanted to try to act in your head like Robert Pattinson is a young version of Batfleck, you can't do that with Commissioner Gordon. All right. You know, it, it's become very clear that Reeves has made the decision to do a clean break. And that's why people ask questions like, you know, well, are we ever going to get to see this Batman inter, you know, like interact with the Suicide Squad or have anything to do with Jared Leto's Joker? Or are we going to, you know, are they going to try to find a way to retcon him into the main DCEU timeline? And it's like, no. No, you really can't do that unless you're going to bring a multiverse idea into the into, you know, to the big screen, which has you know remains to be seen if they're willing to do that. You know, the Batman is really going to exist on its own island, and that's going to be really weird when you consider that Aquaman, Shazam, Birds of Prey, the Suicide Squad, Black Adam are all indirectly linked to the DCEU. But, this, but these Batman movies are just going to exist in a separate world. You know, it's, it's just, it, it's, I, I'm fascinated by all this stuff. But then again, Warner Brothers, you know, they've always had an interesting sort of outlook on this stuff. You know, back in like 2008, 2009, you know, when, when George Miller was trying to get his Justice League Mortal movie made, you know, Christian Bale was the active Batman. He was the mainline Batman. And yet, he was not going to be part of Justice League Mortal. That was going to be Army Hammer. And had it not been for a writer's strike, 
we would already be in a world where there's like competing DC universes in, at, at the cinema. You know, they've been open to this idea for a while, because at one point we would have had Army Hammer playing Batman in this Justice League movie. We'd have Christian Bale in doing The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, and maybe there'd be a sequel to Justice League Mortal. Like, it's like, you know, at, at some point the studio had made total peace with the idea of there being two Batmans. And right now they've absolutely made peace with the idea of there being two Jokers. Right, because we got the the Joaquin Phoenix movie. There, there could possibly be a sequel at some point, which to me is still kind of a disappointment. I wished it was just kind of a singular experience. But here we go. So you got Joker making a billion bucks and becoming a huge part of the pop culture zeitgeist. Meanwhile, in two months, when Birds of Prey comes out, they're going to be alluding to Jared Leto's Joker. So that means that in the public in, in the pop culture consciousness, fans are going to be asked to accept that there are two jokers, that there are multiple versions of these characters depending on which movie you're watching. And I bring all this up because if these next few offshoots of the DCEU are successful, a part of me wonders if they would try to salvage that version of Batman. Maybe not doing like competing solo films, you know, so that it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't interfere with, you know, Matt Reeves, you know, proposed Batman trilogy. But maybe have, you know, a Batman that is representative of the Batfleck Batman who maybe not played by Ben, but someone who could look or has that same feel and would wear that costume and have Jeremy Irons and J.K. Simmons as his, you know, as his support team. A part of me wonders if they wouldn't have a Batman like that for other possible DCEU movies and appearances. You know, because... If Birds of Prey is a hit, they're going to want to make a sequel. If Gotham City Sirens happens, they're going to want to make a sequel. If The Suicide Squad is successful, they're going to want to make sequels. And these are all built around Batman. These are all offshoots of the Batman mythology. So how do you make these movies about a Batman that you can't show and doesn't really exist you know what I mean? Like, if they can't use the Robert Pattinson Batman in these movies, which I don't think they can without causing a lot of confusion, then I wonder if they would consider having two Batman like they were going to do 10 years ago. I wonder if they would consider that, and I wonder how fans would handle that. You know, let me ask you, listener, listening to this right now, would you accept two active interpretations of Batman at the same time on the big screen. And wouldn't it be funny if one of them was played by Army Hammer? <laughs> but anyway, that's my time. Until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. <laughs>